Good morning, everyone. Yeah, so I'm Mark. It's my joy and my privilege to be part of the team that oversees New Life Community Church. And I'm especially excited to be bringing the Word of God to us all this morning as we head into this new season together. So yeah, it's, it's a new season and, and that, that's kind of exciting. It's a time of change for all of us. But with that, yes, it's exciting, but I, I get that it can bring with it a whole range of feelings and emotions. So it was my heart this morning to bring something that's going to strengthen us and encourage us as we head into this new season together. Now, if you're either here or if you're listening to a recording of this message and you've been a Christian for any amount of time, then you'll know that God doesn't always do things the way that we would like him to. His thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. His ways so much higher than our ways. And maybe when he does things that we can't understand, or maybe when he does things in ways that we don't understand, then that, that can maybe be a little bit confusing or frustrating, maybe even a little bit disappointing. Because following Jesus, yes, it is exciting. But if you're anything like me, there are times when I don't understand in that moment what God is doing. And that can affect me if I don't keep my eyes on Jesus. Now, I, I confess to you that whilst I want to be disciplined in reading my Bible, I don't find that that discipline comes completely naturally. I need a little bit of help with that. And so I have amongst my Bibles... I have a Bible that's split up into daily readings that take about a quarter of an hour each. It's, it's called the Bible in a year or, or something like that. And it even has dates to help me, which means on a leap year you get a day off. Anyway, if you haven't got a Bible in a year or something like that, and, and this is something that you're kind of, you know, you're being convicted of or you know, convinced that it's a really good thing to get into, I can really commend it to you. Uh, because regularly reading the whole Bible through even the bits that I'd probably avoid, if, I was, if I'm honest. It, you know, if you're reading it through in a year, it's really helpful. So I can really commend that to you. Anyway, the reason I'm mentioning this to you is that recently in my daily readings, I was in the book of Ezra. And I was really struck by a particular phrase. And I, and I really felt, and I, and I believe it was the Holy Spirit, that I wanted to unpack this phrase for you this morning. Because I believe that God, through his word, has something that he really wants to say to us this morning. So before we read the word together, let's just set the picture a little bit. For about 500 years, kings had ruled in Israel and Judah. And that all ended around about 587 BC, when Jerusalem fell and God's chosen people were taken into exile. Now about a thousand years before that, God's people had gone into Egypt as a family but emerged out of Egypt as a nation. Now in contrast, God's people were beginning to emerge out of Babylon, not as a kingdom, but as a little flock. God's promises to Abraham and the patriarchs still stood over God's people, that they would be a nation through which all nations would be blessed. But you can understand if they were beginning to question whether that was still true, 
And if it was true, then how was God going to do that with this remnant of a people? So it's at this time, as Israel is coming out of exile in Babylon, that the book of Ezra begins. The first chapter centre around a guy called Zerubbabel. It's possibly one of the greatest names in the Bible. So Zerubbabel and his struggle to get the temple rebuilt. And then we hear nothing for about 60 years. And then there's another expedition coming out of Babylon, and this one's led by Ezra himself. So that's the context. If you have a Bible with you, can I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ezra? And we're going to go to chapter 7, and we're going to read the whole thing. And the translation I'm reading from is the New International Version. So this is Ezra chapter 7. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Seraiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Meraioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord the God of Israel had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month. And he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord, and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra the priest and teacher, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who wish to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisers to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisers have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the free will offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. You and your brother Jews may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold, in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for your worship in the temple of your God, and anything else needed for the temple of your God that you may have occasion to supply, you may provide from the royal treasury. Now I, 
King Artaxerxes ordered all the treasures of Trans-Euphrates to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of the God of heaven, may ask of you. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God in heaven. Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and of his sons? You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute or duty on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants or other workers at this house of God. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honour to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favour to me before the king and his advisers and all the king's powerful officials. And because the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that this is bread for us. This is life for us. It's living and active. But Lord, I pray, give me words to speak by your spirit. And give us ears to hear what you want to say to us this morning. And hearts and minds to apply it in our daily lives as we go forth from here. For Jesus' sake and for his glory. In his precious name we pray. Amen. So I wonder if you can guess the phrase that really jumps out of that passage for me. The one that I felt particularly led to speak about. It's the phrase that we find in verse 9. But we also find identical phrases, almost identical phrases, in verses 6 and verse 28. It's going to pop up again in chapter 8. And also in Nehemiah chapter 2, which in, in many ways is a companion book for Ezra. So in verse 9 we read that Ezra had travelled from Babylon to Jerusalem. This was a journey of about 900 miles, taking about four months. It's a long journey. It was often hazardous. But Ezra leaves us in no doubt about why he believes that he's able to arrive safely in Jerusalem. It was because, as he says, the gracious hand of his God was on him. And that, that's really where I want to focus this morning. I want us to consider what it means to be a people who have the gracious hand of God upon them. And I want to draw some encouragement from these verses as we draw out what it meant for Ezra. And the first thing, the first thing that I want us to notice is that it starts with grace. It was the gracious hand of God upon Ezra. It starts with grace. Now, now it's true that Ezra had spent his time in exile well. We're told that he had devoted himself to learning and observing God's law. He'd learned the scriptures 
and he'd been living them out. And apparently, he'd been teaching them to others too, according to verse 10. So Ezra had been preparing himself in exile, but God's hand upon his life was a hand of grace. Grace which is undeserved, cannot be earned, but is freely given. That's really interesting, isn't it? Here is a man well-versed in the law. He knows the law. He follows the law. He keeps the law. He teaches the law. But even so, he understands every good thing that comes to him. Every good thing that comes to him is a work of grace. And he acknowledges that it is God who put it into the king's heart to allow Ezra to go on this expedition. That this was the father extending his good favour and his steadfast love to Ezra, not out of any sense of obligation, but because the Father delights in doing so. And so, brothers and sisters, so it is with us. We have been saved by grace, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. And grace is a gift. It cannot be earned. It's getting something that we didn't deserve. Whereas mercy is not getting something that we did deserve. God demonstrated his love for us by adopting us into his family. Not because he owes us anything, but because he delights in doing so. So having been adopted into the family of God through faith in, in his Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, and having freely received the grace of God upon our lives, let us do as Jesus encourages us in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, and verse 8. Freely have you received, freely give. We have received grace, grace upon grace. In fact, so let us be givers of grace. Let us grow in the love and knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ. Let us treat everyone how we would like to be treated, even if we don't think they deserve it. And if we do that, we will imitate Jesus, who didn't treat us how we deserve to be treated, but who went to the cross willingly, who died on our behalf, and who took the judgment that we deserve so that we might receive the gracious gift of eternal life. It cost us nothing. It cost him everything. And even though we didn't deserve it, he poured out his love on us anyway. And he continues to pour out his love every day. So Ezra talks about this gracious hand of, of God. The hand of God. Now, where have we heard that kind of language before? Is this concept, if this concept of the hand of the Lord or the arm of the Lord, if that seems familiar to you, maybe it's because it's rooted in the redemption of God's people and in their deliverance out of Egypt. And so, for example, in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 3, God gave Moses instructions regarding commemorating the Passover, saying, with a mighty hand, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. So here we see the hand of the Lord being tied up 
with his power, the power of God to deliver his people. And, and maybe for Ezra, perhaps the return from exile in Babylon kind of felt like a second exodus, as he is safely delivered into Jerusalem after a long and difficult and dangerous journey. And then we have verses like Psalm 19, verse 1, where David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So David in this psalm is proclaiming the power of God in creation. Because only God can make something out of nothing. So the hand of the Lord, it speaks of a kind of power. Power to create. Power to deliver. Power to redeem. Power to make a way where there seems to be no way. And what, what effect might that have? And in verse 6, we read that the Persian king Artaxerxes gave Ezra everything that he asked for because the hand of the Lord was upon him. So there's a lesson here, isn't there? That knowing that the hand of, the, of God was on him gave Ezra the assurance that he needed to ask the king for everything that he needed for his journey. And look what happened. God provided everything that was required. And we read the letter from Artaxerxes, we note that gold and silver was provided so that Ezra, along with any who would accompany him, would be able to buy animals, along with grain offerings and, and drink offerings, whatever was necessary and required as a sacrifice of worship to be offered in the temple when they arrive in Jerusalem. So we see here, the power of God to provide for his people. Ezra was given special permission to, give, to make this expedition. And he wouldn't go empty-handed. In fact, all the items he needed for worship were provided out of the king's own treasury. That's the amazing provision of God right there. And the king even effectively said, look, use, use what you need for the sacrifices, and whatever's left over, do what you like with that. I mean, how amazing is that? I mean, that's, that's what it looks to me as though verse 18 is saying. And, and I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that we can also see in these verses the power of God to protect his people. Because we read in verse 24 that King Artaxerxes' people were not allowed to impose taxes or tributes on the temple workers. So it looks like God's people were being protected in that way. And the same psalmist who declared that the skies proclaim the work of God's hands also wrote this in Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy and with my song I praise him. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. My strength, my shield, my fortress. These are ex expressions of safety and of protection. Now, I want to tell you about a time that I believe I experienced God's hand to protect. I wasn't a Christian at the time. But this experience, as I'm sure you'll understand, did play a, a big part in my coming to faith in Jesus. So I worked for many years at a music shop in, in Boscombe, 
selling mainly pianos and keyboards, but also guitars, all kinds of recording equipment and stuff. I was living with my parents at the time, and that meant, uh, that was in Ringwood, so that meant driving down the A338 Spur Road every day. Now, I was driving a big Rover at the time, the, the SD1 shape, if you remember them. My friends called it the Sweeney-mobile. I don't know if it was ever in the Sweeney, but it did start, at the, it was the beginning of that other uh, program uh, that was on for years on Channel 4, which I can't actually remember right now. But this, anyway, the, bottom, the point is, it was a big, heavy old thing. The bill, it was on the, on the uh, opening tiles of the bill, this big old heavy thing. So big and heavy, and I'm not convinced that the brakes were all that good. Or, or more likely, I probably relied on the brakes too heavily at the time. Anyway, I did this journey for about, well, nearly 10 years, every day for nearly 10 years. And on this one particular morning in 1995, I was heading towards Bournemouth on my way to work. And as you've gone past the, the airport on your right, and as you're getting close to the Blackwater turn, turn off towards Christchurch, there's a little hill. And as I'm coming over this hill, and looking down towards where the hospital is now, all I can see is nose-to-tail brake lights. And I'm, in, and I'm doing 80 miles an hour in a car that's probably too heavy for the brakes. Or maybe my foot's a little bit heavy for the brakes. But I do brake and the car starts to skid towards a central reservation. And so I do what I know you're not supposed to do. As I'm heading this way, I overcorrect. And now the car's really spinning. It spins across the fast lane. It spins across the inside lane. And it spins across the off-ramp, the turn-off for Christchurch. And it comes to a halt in the trees at the bottom of St Catherine's Hill. And I'm just sitting there thinking, how on earth, how on earth did I not hit another car? Actually, what I'm thinking is, how, how, am, I, how am I still alive? You see, it was rush hour, and I really was rushing. I phoned a friend of mine who I think had a recovery vehicle. In, in any case, he towed me out, and I drove away relatively unhurt, just a little dink, in the back of the car, where it hit one of the trees. And all the time I'm thinking, how am I still alive? Now with the benefit of hindsight, and because a year later I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, I am confident that I know the answer. How am I still alive? It's because the gracious hand of the Lord was upon me. I deserved nothing from him, I wasn't even really looking for him at the time. Although I, I suppose I was looking for some kind of meaning in life. But that's grace, isn't it? I mean, I didn't deserve it. It was my own fault. I was going too fast. But God's gracious hand was upon my life. And I didn't even know it. But with hindsight, I really do believe that he protected me in that moment. The hand that delivers. The hand that protects it's the same hand that guides us, that disciplines us when we need it, that comforts us. It's the hand of favour. It's the hand of blessing. And when the gracious hand of God is upon you, you can expect amazing things to happen. So what effect did knowing that God's gracious hand was on him have on Ezra? 
Well, it gave him courage. See that in verse 28. It's interesting to note that Ezra had to go before not just the king and his advisers, but also the king's powerful officials. That sounds kind of intimidating to me. And yet, Ezra was emboldened to go before all these guys. He took courage. And he gathered leaders from amongst God's people to make this journey. And it gave him courage to ask the king for all the things that he needed. And knowing that the hand of God was upon him seems to have given him a great assurance. So when Ezra talks about the Lord's favour before the king, in the original language, there's this sense of favour being the steadfast love of God. So it's a resolute unwavering love and this brought a real assurance to Ezra and the other effect that it seems to have had upon Ezra knowing that the hand of the Lord was upon him is that he seems to respond to this amazing letter that King Artaxerxes had given him promising provision promising protection he reads this letter and he just bursts into praise it it reads almost like a doxology Verse 27, praise be to the Lord. It results in praise. I'm reminded of how Paul breaks off in his letter to the Romans in chapter 11. So in that letter, Paul's been speaking about what it means now for the Gentiles to have been grafted into God's people. He's been writing about the mercy of God. And then in chapter 11, he just goes, oh, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who's been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I mean, I love that oh of Paul's. It's like he sees something of the wonder and of the mercy of God. And all he can say in the light of that is oh. And then he kind of unpacks it a little bit. But it's praise. And we see something of the mercy and the grace of God should result in, in praise and in thanksgiving. And that's what we see Ezra doing here when he says, praise be to the Lord. So let's do a little recap then. Whenever we approach the Bible, whether it be together like we are this morning or whether it's just us and our personal devotion, I think it's really helpful when we come to the Bible to ask two questions of the biblical texts. What does God want me or us to know? And what does he want us to know? to do and in answer to that I would say that God wants us to know assurance today that he is with us if you are a Christian if you've given your life to Jesus Christ and if you confess him as Lord and as Saviour then his Holy Spirit now dwells in you he's living in you so you can say with confidence he will never leave me nor forsake me One of my favourite names for Jesus is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. 
God the Father, in Christ, and by the power of his Holy Spirit, is with us. His hand is upon us. We didn't deserve that. We couldn't earn it, but there it is. His hand, his gracious hand, is upon his people. So let me ask you this. Do you know that the hand of the Lord is upon you? Each as individuals, born again by the Spirit of God, but as a family as well. And if you believe and confess that he, Jesus, is both Lord and Saviour, and you are his, his gracious hand is upon you, and I believe that his hand is upon us not just as individuals, but as a community of believers, as a church. He's provided for this church. He's protected this church. And he continues to show steadfast love for us by blessing us so that we can be a blessing to this and the other communities that we serve and the villages beyond. And yes, even to the very ends of the earth. And I'm reminded of a, of a dear friend of mine, Alan, who despite having some fairly serious learning difficulties, has a, quite a remarkable faith. And he often likes to sing or quote Joshua 1 verse 9 to me. And it's a verse that was given to me at my baptism. And I, I kind of think it sums up today's message quite well. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord, your God, will be with you wherever you go. So that ought to give us a deep and real assurance as we head into this new season as one church meeting across three locations and by the end of the month, four locations. Let's continue to trust God to provide everything that we need to fulfill the calling that is upon his people, upon us as a people. We can trust he who is faithful whose faithful and steadfast love lasts from eternity past and into eternity future and forevermore. We can trust him for our provision. He knows our every needs. We can trust him for our protection. He is our strength and our shield. And we can trust him to open doors like he did for Ezra, but also shut doors according to his will and for our good. So as we meditate on this, as we remember that God is with us, that should give us courage to walk through the doors that he opens and to respond to his grace by living lives of sacrificial worship with hearts full of thanks, full of praise for the grace that he has shown us. And as we enter a new chapter in the life of this community, of this church, I hope that this resonates with you. Because we see a church, one unified church, but meeting across several locations, made up of people who found hope, who have found acceptance, who have found new life in Jesus Christ, and have been gathered together and brought into his father's family. Because we want to see, we want to continue seeing lives transformed by Jesus. 
We want to pioneer and establish communities of people who have found faith in our Saviour. And we continue to seek to provide love and support for those who struggle with the challenges that life throws at them. And we believe that God is going to open new doors, new opportunities to demonstrate the love of Jesus and proclaim his wonderful news, good news, good news of eternal life. So let us be a people that are ready to walk through those doors as God opens them. And in the meantime, let us be devoting ourselves to knowing and living out God's word in our daily lives, just like Ezra did in preparation for his adventure. Because brothers and sisters, we're going on a new adventure too. Amen.